You're listening to the Brighter Finances Podcast, the podcast designed to bring the brighter days of life to life through financial education and comprehensive case studies. Hello, and welcome to the Brighter Finances Podcast, the show that brings educational content to help small business owners and content creators bring the brighter days of life to life. This is your host, Louis Guajardo, the founder and lead financial planner at Brighter Days Planning. Today, we'll be going over some of our favorite tax advantage accounts for 2024. We'll go over their max contributions, how they are taxed, and how money is taken out. This episode won't only be discussing IRAs and 401ks, so stay tuned to the end as we will go over one account that has what we think are the best advantages. So let's get started with going over our first account, which is one of our favorites and the most common for many people. It is the 401k. Now, what are some of the tax advantages to having a 401k? Well, they use pre-tax dollars. This means money goes into the account before it is ever taxed. Now, you will owe tax in the future when you begin to take distributions, but it is heavily outweighed because all the earnings are tax deferred. You're allowing compounding to work in your favor. Now, every dollar saved into the account will not be taxable, thereby decreasing your taxable income. Let's go over the max contributions for these accounts. They do have really high contribution limits, which is another advantage of using a 401k. For 2024, that contribution limit is $23,000, but there's an additional $7,500 that you could use if you are over the age of 50. So for somebody that's over the age of 50, the total contribution you can make on your behalf is $30,500. Now, another advantage to these 401ks is that they allow for employer contributions. Max contribution between employee and employer is $69,000 total. So how does the employer contribute to these 401ks? Well, there's typically three different ways that they would do so. The first being, and most common, a fixed percentage up to a certain amount of your earnings. So this would be, say, 50% match up to 6% of your salary. Now, they can also do what's called a tiered approach based on your contributions. So that might look like 100% match on the first 4% of your salary, and then decreasing that to a 50% match on the next 4% of your salary. Lastly, they can also do a fixed percentage that relies on the 401k contribution limits. So that would look something like 50% match on all contributions up to the IRS contribution limit of $69,000. Typical rule of thumb for 401ks, um, just as a side note, is to contribute all the way up into what your employer is willing to match you. So if the employer is willing to match 10%, then you should be contributing 10% to your 401k because essentially that's just free money that they're giving you on top. Now let's go over what's called vesting. Vesting is basically the amount that the employer contributes that is attributed to you or that you are entitled to. So because a 401k is considered a defined contribution plan, there are two different ways that they can go about vesting. They can do what's called a two to six year graded vesting schedule or a three-year cliff vesting schedule. Now let's show you how a three-year cliff might work. So in your first year of service, your vested percentage would be 0%. After your first year, it would still be 0%. After your second year, it would still be 0%. But once you hit three years of service, you would immediately be fully vested at 100%. 
So this means that if the employer had contributed, say, $10,000, then if you left in the first year or second year, you wouldn't be fully vested and therefore you would forfeit that full $10,000. So what happens after three years of service? Well, that $10,000 would become yours. It would be considered fully vested and therefore you would have a full entitlement to those $10,000 that they had contributed. So the two to six year graded works like this. In your first year, you're going to be vested 0%. After your first year, it would be 0% still. And then after your second year, you'd be 20% vested. After your third year, you'd be 40% vested. And then 20%, so on and so forth, all the way up to year six, where you would become fully vested at 100%. So let's take a quick example and see how this might look with real dollars. If your employer decided to contribute $1,000 in your first year, then you would have $0 vested. If they contributed another $1,000 for each year following, then after year one, you'd have $2,000, but zero would be vested. After year two, it would be $3,000, at which point 20% would be vested, which is $600. After year three, it would be 40% or $1,600 vested. After year four, 60% at $3,000. Year five would be 80% at $4,800. And then finally, in year six, it would be $7,000 totally vested, which would be attributed to you. So that's how vesting works in a 401k. Now, it's important to point out that there are penalties for early withdrawals of 401ks, which is one of the downsides to them. So there is a 10% penalty for early withdrawal, which would be considered before 59 and a half. However, there are a few exceptions, some of the most popular ones being birth or adoption, death, disability, and then there's a couple of others as well. Let's go over a example showing the difference between a fully taxable account compared to a tax deferred account. Let's assume that we're starting off with a $0 balance and making annual contributions of $10,000 to each account over the course of 30 years, expecting a rate of return of 8% and assuming a marginal tax bracket of 25%. That would mean our after-tax return would be 6% for the fully taxable account and then 8% for the tax-deferred account. Now, after 30 years, the future account value of the fully taxable account would be $790,582 compared to $1,132,832 in the tax-deferred account. Now, once you take those funds out, of course, like I said before, you are going to pay taxes on it. Assuming this 25% marginal tax rate, you are going to have left $924,624 as compared to the fully taxable account at still $790,582. When it all comes down to it, this is an additional $134,042 if you were to invest these funds into a tax-deferred account. So now you can see what the real advantage is of using a tax-deferred account, such as a 401k. It really allows your money to continue to work in that compounding manner. So let's move on to a couple of our other favorites, one of them being a SEP IRA and the other a solo 401k. Now these two are going to be self-employed retirement accounts, so it's really going to be focused on that individual business owner. We won't dive into the differences between a traditional 401k and a solo 401k because in many respects they are the same. Instead, what we're going to do is compare the 401k to the SEP IRA. So what are the tax advantages to these accounts? Well, both the solo 401k and the SEP IRA use pre-tax dollars just like the regular 401k does. Both of these accounts allow identical tax benefits, but the main difference comes in when we look at the max contribution limits. 
For the solo 401k, they allow employee and employer contributions up to $69,000 for 2024 or 100% of compensation, whichever is less, just like it would in the regular 401k. Now for the SEP IRA, it allows up to $69,000 as well, but that is limited to 20% of income for self-employed individuals and 25% for other employees. So what we're talking about here is the employee owner's reasonable compensation, not business profits. So let's say, for example, you have a LLC that is being taxed as a S corporation. Well, if you're taking a $150,000 salary and say $300,000 in owner distributions, only $30,000 can be contributed, which is 20% of the $150,000. So in order to get the full contribution for a 401k, you only need to make $69,000. However, when it comes to the SEP IRA, you would need $345,000 in a salary in order to make the full contribution. The solo 401k also allows a $7,500 catch-up for those over the age of 50, and the SEP IRA does not allow for any catch-up contribution. So we touched on this already, but the SEP IRA contributions are from employer, not from employee. An employee cannot make contributions to the SEP IRA. For the solo 401k, they can have contributions from either the employee or the employer. So where does this really come into effect? Well. If a business that has a SEP IRA as their retirement plan doesn't have a profit, then no contribution can be made. On a solo 401k, the employee can still make a contribution to the uh, retirement plan, but the employer would not be able to if there is no profit. Moving on to the penalties, they are pretty much the same as the 401k with just a few differences for the exemptions. So what are the big benefits for each one of these accounts? Well, the big difference is going to be the contribution limit. For the 401k, it's going to be much easier to get funds into that account as it would be compared to the SEP IRA because of things like the employee versus the employer match that we had discussed earlier. If you're trying to max retirement savings, you should probably go for the 401k. If you're trying to keep things simple, then you probably want to go with the SEP IRA. But overall, it would really depend on what your salary is, what you are paying yourself from the business, and what you want your contribution to be. If it's fully allowable within the SEP IRA realm, then it might be easier just to go with the SEP IRA. However, if you're trying to max out your contributions, then going the solo 401k route might be more beneficial for you. Our third account is the highly coveted Roth IRA, which many, many people know about nowadays. They are really good, but they have strict limits and are phased out based on your salary. So the tax advantage here is that contributions are made after tax. So if you expect yourself to be in a higher tax bracket in the future, well then paying the tax now while your tax bracket is lower may be very beneficial for you. They also allow for tax-free growth. So when you take out the money in the future, you're not gonna pay taxes on it again. You only are taxed once on those dollars. Now, it isn't included in income when distributed either, which is going to be really beneficial, and we'll discuss a little bit more as we uh, continue to talk about the Roth IRA. In 2024, the max contribution is $7,000, but it gets phased out above $146,000 for single and $230,000 for married filing joint taxpayers. Between $146,000 and $153,000 for single and $230,000 and $240,000 for married filing joint, you may contribute partially, and that would be calculated as follows. You start with your modified 2024 adjusted gross income, and then you subtract either 
whatever your limit is, married filing joint would be $230,000 or $146,000 if you're filing a single. Then you get that number and divide by $15,000. Multiply by your max contribution limit, either $7,000 or $8,000 if you're eligible for the $1,000 catch-up. And then subtract the result of the previous step from the max contribution limit. Let's look at a little example here so we can see how this would play out. So let's assume this person is filing single. Their modified adjusted gross income is $149,000 and they are age 34. Now in 2024, like I said, their modified adjusted gross income was 149. So you take $149,000 minus $146,000, which is that lower phase out limit for the single taxpayer, and that equals $3,000. You then take that $3,000 and divide it by 15,000, which equals 20%. Take 20% multiplied by $7,000, which is their max contribution, and you get $1,400. Subtract $1,400 from the max contribution of $7,000, and the total contribution that this person would be able to make to a Roth IRA comes down to $5,600. Now, the other plans before that we had spoken about were coming from employer contributions. The Roth IRA does not allow any employer contributions. So there's no employer contribution, but there may be an option to contribute to an employer retirement plan with a Roth option, such as a Roth 401k or a Roth SEP IRA. We're not going to go into too much detail, but we'll just go over one major difference in that the employer contribution for a Roth 401k have higher limits, but they are required to take RMDs, which is a required minimum distribution, unlike a Roth IRA, which is not subject to the RMD rules. Penalties for a Roth IRA can have a couple of additional exceptions um, as compared to the SEP IRA and the 401k. Two of the biggest differences are that up to $10,000 lifetime can be taken out for a first home purchase. And then you can also take additional funds for qualified educational expenses. This is with the caveat that the account must be open for a total of five years. So it's extremely important if you are eligible to begin contributing to a Roth IRA to get that Roth IRA opened up as soon as possible and fund as far back as you can go. Let's say, for example, we are in January 2nd of 2024. You can still contribute to Roth IRA for the year of 2023, in which case the five-year rule would be backdated all the way down to January 1st of 2023. So even if I opened up the Roth IRA today and made the contribution, I would still have technically one full year and one day, um, since this is January 2nd, worth of that Roth, that five-year rule for a Roth IRA to be open. We talked about how a Roth IRA may be beneficial for you earlier, but we're going to go ahead and go over it in a little bit more detail. Now, just really quickly, we want to restate that a Roth IRA really comes into play when you expect to be in a higher tax bracket in later years. So they are really good in your early years when you're just getting started. Let's assume an annual before-tax contribution of $7,000. So this person is maxing out their Roth IRA contribution. We're going to do a rate of return of 7%. This person is 30 years old and they expect to retire at the age of 60. So these funds will be invested for 30 years. Their current marginal tax rate is 22% and they expect to be in the 32% tax bracket when they retire. So if they had contributed these funds to a simple, a traditional IRA or a SEP IRA, the balance at 60 would be $661,226. 
In the Roth IRA, it would be $515,756. So you might be asking yourself, well, why wouldn't I just contribute to the SEP IRA? That's because those funds are then taxed at that 32% bracket. So after tax, you would only have $449,633 remaining in the SEP IRA. Um, excuse me, it would actually be outside of the SEP IRA because you would have taken a distribution on it. For the Roth IRA, you can get those funds out of the Roth IRA and have $515,756 still. So a Roth IRA account can accumulate an additional $66,123 in this example. If we expect our tax bracket to be higher now using the same numbers, then the traditional IRA and the Roth IRA numbers would just be flipped and the deduction from the traditional or SEP IRA would be more beneficial than contributing to the Roth IRA. One point I'd like to make in regard to the Roth IRA that I don't often see discussed is the flexibility between different accounts, what we call tax diversification. This is best visualized with our tax control triangle. So visualize at the top of the pyramid a tax-free section of the triangle. On the bottom right, you'll see tax-deferred, and on the bottom left, you'll see taxable accounts. The tax-free accounts are going to be things like your Roth IRA and HSAs. Tax-deferred accounts will be things like traditional IRAs, 401ks, and so on. And your taxable accounts are really going to be your traditional brokerage accounts. So how does this tax control triangle and tax diversification come into play when we plan with our clients? Well, first we would need to discuss the current tax rates for, let's use a single filer. Between $0 and $11,600 is going to be the 10% tax bracket. Between $11,600 and $47,150 is going to be the 12% tax bracket. However, we take a big jump up between $47,150 all the way up to $100,525. It's a 10% increase. So now let's say we take $61,750 from a SEP IRA. That's assuming we take the standard deduction of $14,600. $61,750 minus $14,600 from the standard deduction brings us down to that 12% bracket, $47,150. So any dollar that we take above this now is going to be taxed at the 22% bracket. So we pay the $5,426 in approximate taxes, but we still need to take out another $20,000 for living expenses. If we did this, we would pay an additional $4,400 in taxes if it was taken from something like a SEP IRA. But by having this tax diversification, we can take these funds tax-free from the Roth IRA, which would save us $4,400 in taxes. This has the potential to be a compounding effect since we wouldn't have to take an additional $4,400 out to pay the taxes. These funds can stay invested in the SEP IRA and hopefully continue to grow for us until we need them. I hope you could really see the full advantage of having a Roth IRA, but not only having a Roth IRA, but having tax diversified accounts between taxable, tax deferred, and tax free accounts. It's extremely important and extremely beneficial when you get into retirement. So we discussed the Roth IRA, which is considered a tax-free account, but now we're going to go over the HSA, which is another tax-free account and might have even more tax advantages than a Roth IRA does. Before we get into it, let's discuss qualification. So you must be enrolled in a high deductible health plan in order to contribute to a health savings account. Now, the HSA is potentially one of the best accounts because it offers what we call the triple tax advantage. First, we must realize that HSAs allow for 
investments to be made within the account. Depending on your HSA provider, you may have the option to invest in stocks, bonds, ETFs, mutual funds, and much more. Contributions to an HSA can be pre-tax dollars or they can be tax deductible if you're using after-tax dollars. So there's your second tax advantage. The third tax advantage is the tax-free growth. Any funds that come out that are used for medical expenses are distributed completely tax-free. Let me demonstrate the difference between accounts. Typically, we see dual tax advantage. Say for the Roth IRA, contributions are after-tax so we've already paid taxes on that money. Now the investment does grow tax deferred, which is beneficial and withdrawals are tax free, which is beneficial. For something like a traditional IRA or employer plans, we have contributions that are pre-tax, which is beneficial for us. And then we have investment growth that is tax deferred, which is also beneficial to us. However, distributions are taxable when we take them. Now for a taxable account, there's no real tax benefit. Contributions are made after tax, investment growth is taxable, and withdrawals are taxable on the gains. With an HSA, we have this triple tax advantage that we've discussed, contributions being pre-tax dollars, which is beneficial, investment growth being tax-deferred, which is beneficial, and withdrawals being tax-free if they're used for qualified medical expenses, which is beneficial. Max contributions for HSAs in the year of 2024 are $4,150 for single and $8,300 for families. There is a catch-up contribution for those over 55 instead of 50 as it was before of $1,000 for either single or family contributions up until 65 years old or when you're enrolled in Medicare. Now employer contributions. Yes, employers can make contributions, but they aren't required to, and if they do, it still will be limited to the max contribution that you have, either $4,150 or $8,300. Now, employer contributions for HSA are always immediately vested. There is no vesting schedule other than 100% immediately vested. Anytime they contribute a dollar, that dollar is yours to take. Now, there are four ways that contributions are usually made by an employer. Upfront lump sum contributions, flat contributions each payroll period, upfront lump sum and then flat contributions each payroll period, or periodic lump sums. Maybe they would contribute, say, $500 semi-annually or quarterly. As for penalties on HSA, there is no penalty for early distribution. Distributions can be taken out whenever. However, if it's not for a qualified medical expense, then there will be a 20% penalty and the funds would be subject to ordinary income tax since you hadn't paid taxes on them previously. But let's get into why we think this account is so beneficial and that may not necessarily be an issue after all. So the biggest advantage that we discussed was the triple tax advantage, which is what we discussed earlier, but it gets better. One thing that we see people get confused with about an HSA is that they think the strategy is just to take funds out as medical expenses are accumulated. However, funds don't need to be distributed in the year that the medical expenses occur. What we like to explore is how can we keep track of a person's medical expenses and keep copies of every receipt. This way, we can let the funds continue to grow tax-free until a later time, usually retirement. Yes, that's right. You do not have to take the funds out of an HSA at any predetermined time. You can take the funds out of an HSA whenever you want as long as you have previously gathered up 
medical expenses. You can always reimburse yourself one year, two years, 10 years later. There is no rule against this. So let's look at an example of how this might look. We'll use round numbers to make this one easy to follow, but it's important to remember that the greater the contribution, the greater the advantage becomes. So let's say someone contributes $1,000 every year for 20 years, but also racks up $1,000 in medical expenses every year. Well, they decide to use their HSA funds to pay for these medical expenses. After 20 years, they received $20,000 tax-free that were used for medical expenses. This is obviously a really great advantage of an HSA, but it can get much better. Let's now assume the same scenario, but instead of paying the expenses out of the HSA, we're going to let the money continue to grow and use our excess cash flow to pay for medical bills instead. After 20 years, $20,000 worth of contributions has turned into $43,865, assuming a rate of return of 7%. So you can obviously see the big benefit there. We're getting an additional $23,865 if we allow the money to continue to compound in the HSA instead of using those funds to pay for our medical expenses. Now, really quick, let's just use bigger numbers. If we contributed $5,000 instead of $1,000, then this number would grow to $219,326 instead of $100,000. This can be such a great tax advantage, especially for retirement planning, as one of the most worrisome expenses for about-to-be retirees is how are they going to cover their medical expenses and Medicare premiums once their employer-sponsored plan runs out and they are no longer covered under it. Okay, so the time has come. What did we discuss? Well, tax advantage accounts are extremely important in our journey to building wealth. Some of our favorite accounts include employer retirement accounts such as 401k, especially if the employer is making some sort of contribution on your behalf. We also love Roth IRAs for the tax diversification that they offer as we build a decumulation strategy. Also, being that a lot of our listeners are small business owners, we also appreciate self-employed retirement accounts such as SEP IRAs and solo 401ks. Our last and probably one of our favorite accounts is the HSA, the Health Savings Account. Let's look one more time how these accounts are taxed. HSAs receive triple tax advantage. Contributions are made with pre-tax dollars, investments grow tax-deferred, and withdrawals come out tax-free if used for qualified medical expenses. Roth IRAs, whether it be a traditional Roth IRA or within an employer plan such as a solo 401k, use after-tax contributions while investment growth is tax-deferred and withdrawals come out tax-free. Traditional IRAs or employer plans such as the 401k or a SEP IRA have contributions that are made pre-tax. Investment growth is tax-deferred, but withdrawals are taxable on the way out. And then lastly, your typical brokerage account has after-tax contributions, taxable growth, and gains are also taxed when withdrawn. Whatever type of account you're interested in for your small business or your personal circumstances, we can help you set up any of your options at Brighter Days Planning. If you want to learn more or would like to get started, visit us at brighterdaysplanning.com. Until next time, cheers to Brighter Days. Thank you for listening to the Brighter Finances podcast. If you'd like access to some of our free resources or would like to see how we may be able to bring you brighter days, then go to brighterdaysplanning.com and click get started where you can schedule a one-on-one meeting with myself. 
We'd love to learn about your life and see how we can be of service. Lastly, please remember nothing that we discuss through this podcast should be considered advice. You should always consult with a financial, tax, or legal professional so they can become familiar with your unique circumstances before making any financial decisions.